You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Those of you who wonder what the utility of studying relations between Russia and Iran would be today might look no further than a 2016 book by the Iranian-American author Amir Abbas Fakhravar, Comrade Ayatollah. In a 700-page tome, Fakhravar asserts that Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, rather than the anti-American hardliner he might appear to be at first glance, is in fact a plant of the KGB. In Fakhravar's account, Khamenei secretly studied at People's Friendship University in Moscow in the 1960s. There, he was recruited by Soviet intelligence agencies and groomed to turn Iran into a Soviet satellite. Forget Mossadegh, forget the American-backed coup d'etat in 1953. In this rendition of Iranian history, 1979 and the Islamic Republic itself reflect a grand Russian plot to subvert Iranian independence. Now, Comrade Ayatollah furnishes precious little evidence to back up these claims, and nothing that I've seen in the papers of the People's Friendship University substantiates anything in Fakhrabar's fantastic rendition of history. But lest you think that Fakhrabar is a joke, consider that he's been invited by congressional Republicans to testify as an expert on Iran. More recently, he's appeared as a guest on Fox News alongside John Bolton proclaiming that, quote, the people in Iran love President Trump and urging U.S. intervention. And more recently still, he's appeared on the podcast of former Trump advisor Sebastian Gorka. So however bizarre it may seem against the background of Russiagate, by 2016, nearly four decades since a revolution founded on slogans of neither East nor West, neither the Soviet Union nor the United States, Fakhrovar and American neoconservatives had circumstantial evidence to back up their claims that the Islamic Republic had thrown itself in with Russia. Tehran and Moscow have collaborated with one another during the course of the Syrian civil war, and Iran allowed the Russian Air Force to use an airbase in northern Iran, Hamadan, uh, for sorties and refueling in its campaign against the Islamic State. This marked the first time that Iran allowed a foreign power to use its territory uh, or to put military bases on its territory since 1979. And between Russian anxiety to prevent an American strike on Iran um, and Russia's efforts to prevent losing even more influence in Central Asia to China, Moscow's courtship of Iran is likely to continue. So understanding how the Islamic Republic distanced itself from claims of neither East nor West and came to align itself closely with Russia demand something better than conspiracy theories of the likes that uh, Hannity or Dr. G is likely to serve up. More specifically, it demands looking, I think, at the years of the late Cold War. It demands exploring how elites in both Tehran and Moscow realigned visions for their state's missions in the world and came to saw themselves as, in the words of Mikhail Gorbachev, doomed to good relations with one another. So in my research more broadly, I look at how Shia Islamist activists in Iran, Afghanistan, and Iraq sought to appropriate the Cold War for their own ends from approximately the 1960s to the early 1990s. Much of my research looks at Islamist reactions to Marxist-Leninist 
and Maoist groups during that period. It explores relations between different Shia Islamist groups, as well as how these Shia groups understood the threat of Saudi Arabia's pan-Islamic networks in the 1960s and 1970s. This afternoon, however, I want to focus more discreetly on the question of relations between the Soviet Union and the Islamic Republic of Iran during Mikhail Gorbachev's years in power, so approximately 85 to 91 or so. And I hope that you'll take two core messages from my talk this afternoon. The first is that Moscow and Tehran turned to one another as elites in both countries abandoned pretensions to lead a global anti-imperialist crusade and instead retreated to the more modest goal of combating American hegemony in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, respectively. Secondly, and more methodologically, if we want to understand the histories of Russia and its region, that is to say the remit of Krika and other similar area study centers, we need to look beyond the borders of the former Soviet Union. Now, this is not to reject a more subtle, grounded knowledge of the places in between Moscow and Tehran. And this talk is really going to focus on events in Moscow and Tehran, largely, frankly, overlooking kind of local reactions in Kazakhstan, Dagestan, and so on. But I, I do hope to show that the histories of Russia, the Caucasus, and Central Asia need to take into account voices from beyond just the Soviet or former Soviet remit itself. The Soviet Union experimented with secular institutions to manage religion and public life. It presented itself as a champion of the third world and anti-colonialism from the 1950s, if not earlier. And it presented itself as an emancipator of Muslim women. Yet none of these experiments took place in isolation. So my research attempts to connect the Soviet experience and Soviet Muslim experiences perhaps more specifically with those of the world at large, specifically vis-a-vis -vis Iran, Afghanistan, and to a lesser extent, the Arab world. Now, fortunately, new archival sources allow us to deliver on some of this vision. Over the last three years, I've spent much time in former Soviet archives, the papers of Gorbachev's advisors, and the notes of Soviet foreign minister Edward Shevardnadze's translator. Yet, whereas work on the USSR and the world sometimes stops where the Soviet archive ends, my research also engages Persian and Arabic language material to see how Iranian, Afghan, and Arab actors impacted and understood this region. More broadly, my work connects traditional Soviet archives with less formal archives, interviews, and other sources that give us a sense of Iranian and Afghan experiences of the Cold War. So along those lines, my talk this afternoon is going to be divided into three parts, looking at three distinct arenas of Soviet-Iranian uh, relations during the late 1980s. I'll start off by exploring Tehran's and Moscow's disengagement from visions of anti-imperialist internationalism. Both regimes started the decade quite engaged in leading a very ambitious global anti-imperialist front, but the international political environment and internal regime dynamics in both countries marginalized such visions of internationalism. I'll next explore bilateral relations between Moscow and Tehran themselves, looking at a number of high-profile meetings between Iranian and Soviet officials from around 1987 to 1989. These meetings, I hope, changed some of our perceptions of leaders like Gorbachev and Khamenei. The former was as interested in keeping Iran out of the Western orbit as he was in ending the Cold War, while the latter was as interested in removing Iran from international isolation through closer ties with the Eastern Bloc as he was some grand crusade against the United States. Finally, I'll examine the issue of economic ties, looking at how intellectuals in the Soviet Union diagnosed the prospects for a so-called Iranian perestroika that would mirror Soviet efforts. Ultimately, these efforts went nowhere. 
but they do show us how Soviet elites thought about perestroika and glasnost as a regional or even global phenomenon until the Soviet collapse made these visions history. So I'll start with the theme of the end of internationalism. Other scholars look at the Soviet war in Afghanistan primarily from the point of view of Moscow and Washington and often remove Afghan and Iranian actors from the stage entirely. But this focus on Cold War high geopolitics shunts not only regional dynamics, but also local actors' ideas about internationalism to the side. For much of the early 1980s, elites in Moscow and Tehran saw their involvement in Afghanistan in terms of broader support for an inchoate global anti-imperialist movement. Some of the most fascinating Persian language resources that I've engaged in my research show this dynamic quite nicely. This summer, I had the chance to visit the Institute Afghanica. As you can see, the weather is just like Madison based on my dress, uh, which holds one of the world's largest collections of Afghan opposition materials. Digging through dozens of boxes of pamphlets, I not only threw out my back, but also came across a pamphlet from the January 1980 Conference of Liberation Movements organized in Tehran. This was an international conference organized by the Iranian students who had seized the American embassy that previous autumn. The conference included representatives from perhaps usual suspects, like Afghan Mujahideen, Iraqi Shia activists, uh, members of the Lebanese Amal movement, um, also Shia activists, but it also presented them as part of a larger global struggle that included representatives from the Canary Islands, uh, the Moro Muslim people of the Philippines, uh, Muslims from Southern Thailand, uh, Bolivia and Chile, and even radical Native American groups. The conference was just one event, but it fit into a larger pattern of support and interest for anti-imperialist movements championed by Islamist internationalists within the regime. My finds in Switzerland offered a fascinating parallel to discoveries from the former socialist world that demonstrated uh, Soviet internationalism during the Cold War. During my time based in Berlin, I've been able to make contact with many former Iranian socialists uh, who traveled to the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, or Afghanistan during their struggles against the Shah and later the Islamic Republic. These conversations made me aware of a world of Iranian socialist memoirs and autobiographies. And one example is this is a travelogue of an Iranian socialist and poet, Mahmoud Etemadzadeh, for those interested, who traveled to Kabul, Afghanistan in the summer of 1980. So just a couple of months after the Tehran conference uh, we just uh, looked at. Attending this conference in Kabul, um, or attending, uh, visiting Kabul, uh, this Iranian poet attended a session of the Afro-Asian People's Solidarity Organization, a Soviet-backed anti-imperialist group. The Iranian went on field trips to village schools near the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, and while visiting those schools, he noted how portraits of Fidel Castro hung on the walls. The conference included not only Iranians, but also representatives from Vietnam, Ethiopia, the African National Congress from South Africa, European socialists, and even African-American peace activists from Philadelphia. So in the early 1980s, Tehran and Moscow and, the, and Moscow's client regime in Afghanistan were very much in the business of organizing <coughs> anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and anti-racist movements from around the world under their auspices. And yet, these visions of anti-imperialism had a shelf life. In Iran, Islamist internationalists, such as Mohammed Montazeri, sought nothing less than what they called a globalization of Islam. 
they, they stressed that they were less interested in building an Islamic Republic of Iran than an Islamic Republic in Iran. For figures like Montezeri, who's kind of a good stand-in for this strain in the Iranian regime at the time, Iran was not merely a country, but was more precisely a platform uh, for a project that would overcome nationalism altogether, in particular in the Muslim world, but everywhere. Under his leadership, a building in central Tehran the size of Ingraham Hall was turned into a clearinghouse for what Montezeri dubbed the Liberation Jihad. However, in the summer of 1981, Montezeri was killed in a bombing that killed or wounded much of the leadership of the Islamic Republic. The building devoted to Montezeri's Liberation Jihad, and about which there are excellent Afghan memoirs, was shuttered. In the meantime, elements in the Iranian leadership, such as Hashmi Rafsanjani, attempted to broker a rapprochement with the United States. On November 4, 1986, however, the seventh anniversary of the seizure of the U.S. Embassy, Lebanese newspapers associated with the late Montezeri leaked information about what became called Iran-Contra to the world. Nonetheless, Rafsanjani and his allies succeeded in marginalizing Montezeri and others associated with him within the regime. Thus, by 1986 to 1987, Iran's realists had succeeded in destroying or marginalizing champions of the global revolution. Iran obviously continued to support Islamist groups abroad in Afghanistan, Hezbollah, and Lebanon, obviously. But if one looks closely and looks at these debates from the inside, it's quite clear that it began to dump groups that called for nationalization of resources, overcoming the nation state, expropriating the so-called feudal class, et cetera, et cetera. So there's really a shift from the so-called left Islamists to more conservative Islamists who are religious but not fundamentally interested in economic change or kind of globalism, so to speak. And yet, uh, the challenge facing people like Rav Sanjani was that the Iran-Contra scandal had discredited rapprochement with the United States as a way out of Iran's international isolation. This retreat from internationalism in Iran was paralleled by a turn away from socialist internationalism in the USSR. By the time Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the summer of 1985, the Soviet Union was mired in an Afghan quagmire. It was also supporting regimes in Angola, Ethiopia, Nicaragua, and elsewhere in a quixotic battle against the United States and the People's Republic of China in the Third World. And the foreign policy analysts who came to form Gorbachev's team were skeptical of this Soviet uh, project altogether. Slamming the Afghan communists, Anatoly Chernyayev pictured here, one of Gorbachev's foreign policy advisors, defined the ideology of Afghans as the dogmatism of Marxism-Leninism plus parasitism in relationship to the USSR. In general, he added, we have a shitload of Marxists in Africa as well. Chernyayev was fed up with the third world, fed up with socialist internationalism, and looking for a way out of this altogether. And so over the first couple of years as uh, during Gorbachev's general secretaryship, Gorbachev and his advisors like Chernyayev would seek to roll back Soviet geopolitical overreach in Afghanistan and the Third World. Moscow replaced the ineffective Afghan communist leadership with the more dynamic leadership of the head of the Afghan KGB. Conferences like the one that I showed in Kabul from 1980 soon became a thing of the past. And yet all this begged the question of how Moscow ought to, re ought to relate to larger states like the Islamic Republic, as it was in the process of shifting towards a more interest-based foreign policy. So to conclude my first section, Moscow and Tehran abandoned visions of anti-imperialist internationalism during the first half of the 1980s. The Reagan administration's and Saudi Arabia's support for reactionary guerrilla groups made it difficult to secure territory in third world theaters. 
and the oil shock, hikes in U.S. interest rates, and globalization made territorial sovereignty less meaningful in any event in a quest against American hegemony. Both Tehran and Moscow struggled, however, to articulate ways to push back against the United States to protect their own spheres of influence. So I'll now move to my second theme, bilateral rapprochement between the Soviet Union and Iran. Throughout the 1980s, Tehran sought to increase its ties with regimes in Eastern Europe. The regimes in Warsaw and Budapest cultivated ties with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Iranian representatives used these regimes likewise to expand contacts with North Korea and Vietnam as arms suppliers in their war with Iraq. Close relations with the Soviet Union itself, however, remained touchy due to ideological reasons. Yet, um, in early 1987, Tehran and Moscow began a cautious pro uh, process of rapprochement with one another. And you can see here um, a Soviet film of the arrival of Iranian Foreign Minister Ali Akbar Veliati to Moscow, for instance, the first visit of an Iranian Foreign Minister to Moscow in more than 50 years. In this film, you'll see Veliati arriving in Moscow along with Deputy Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Larijani and former revolutionary judge Sadek Khali, where they would meet with Soviet Foreign Minister Edward Shevardnadze. Hopefully this works. So, as I began to try to unpack the meaning of these, of these, of these meetings and, and things that I was vaguely aware of um, in the late 1980s, I had to turn towards a different set of sources than the kind I engaged and discussed in my first section. Many Soviet foreign ministry archives are open, but they generally kind of stop giving you stuff after around 1982 or 83 or so. However, working in the archives of the East German secret police um, in Berlin, I came across a memorandum from uh, Yuli Voronsov, a high-ranking uh, Soviet diplomat, uh, that helped shed light on Veliati's ambitions during this meeting. Um, and in this um, East German uh, document describing the meeting, uh, Voronsov and, and through him an East German uh, correspondent, uh, Veliati claimed that a, quote, progressive arch was forming from Kabul and Afghanistan to Tripoli and Libya, with Iran in the middle. More than that, he noted in this February 87 meeting that he, would, he wanted to speak with the Soviet Union as the representative of a group of countries that, although it does not yet exist, would recommend itself as an Islamic, anti-imperialist, and anti-American force. Veliati was seeking to articulate a different vision of Iranian or Soviet power than those I discussed in the first section of today's talk. Rather than supporting the international communist movement, the Soviet Union and its Afghan client state would form an anti-imperialist axis with Libya and Syria, as well as Iran. 
And rather than embracing visions of overcoming the state entirely, Montezeri's vision of an Islamic Republic in Iran rather than of Iran, Tehran would ally itself with Arab states like Syria and Libya. Iran would, in effect, abandon its ambitions to spread the revolution in Afghanistan in exchange for partnering with Moscow more closely in the Levant and the western part of the Middle East. Now, some Soviet officials looking at this described Veliati's words as megalomania. Others, however, saw it as an opportunity to develop close relations with Iran, something that became clear working with Chernyayev's per, uh, personal papers uh, held at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. There, I was able to see how, not long after Veliati's visit, Chernyayev wrote a memorandum to Gorbachev underscoring the need not to, quote, lose Iran. Moscow had to be careful to not to offend its Arab allies, but Iran was of a magnitude uh, all to itself. Cultivating relations to it would be crucial regardless of how many obnoxious third world client states Moscow was willing to throw under the bus. Now, as this process of rapprochement was ongoing, a big splash came in early 1989. Uh, at that point, the Ayatollah Khomeini sent a delegation uh, to deliver a message to, to Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, this included deputy foreign minister, um, an Ayatollah, but often forgotten and often left out of accounts um, is that it included a female Iranian revolutionary, uh, Marzi Hadice, uh, here pictured in the 1970s, a veteran of kind of anti-Shah campaigns in London, uh, PLO activities in southern Lebanon, um, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, she's also an important part of this delegation and has written extensively in her memoirs. She died a couple of years ago, but wrote very extensively in her memoirs about the trip. Around her, uh, upon her arrival in Moscow, Hadice was shocked by the material poverty of the Soviet capital and could not believe how elderly women swept the streets around Red Square. Hadice was, however, proud to represent Iran and its revolution on the world stage, a kind of sort of female diplomat, in a sense, uh, on the world stage, operating in a very much male sphere, as we saw from the film. Once an AK-47 toting revolutionary, Hadice now embraced her role as a modest companion for the male members of the delegation. She refused to shake the hands of Soviet diplomats or translators throughout the trip, and it was only when Gorbachev offered to shake her hand as a, quote, mother of the revolution that she agreed to touch a man at all. Even as Iran was pursuing a conservative settlement with the Soviet Union vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and, and much of the rest of the Middle East, it still used figures like Hadice to present itself as part of the vanguard of something, um, a champion or a defender of, of women on the global stage. During the delivery of the message to Gorbachev itself, Hadice was tasked with monitoring Gorbachev's reactions as the other Iranians read the letter in Persian to the Soviet leader. In the message, Khomeini, uh, Khomeini stressed that Marxism was ideologically discredited. The leader of China delivered the first blow to communism, wrote Khomeini. You delivered the second and apparently final blow upon its face. The only solution, he wrote, was to turn to Islam. At the time, Hadice recalled, Gorbachev processed the message calmly in spite of its explosive content. Only invitations for Soviet scholars to come study in Iranian seminaries and Iranian claims to be a, quote, partner in the fate of the Muslims of the world, she recalled, irritated Gorbachev. Now, shifting back to the more Soviet files, and if we look at those, Gorbachev and his advisors understood this message in, in actually quite uh, different terms. At a Politburo meeting a month later, uh, in February 1989, Gorbachev laughed at the format of the message, but he saw it as not only a signal, but also a political sign. Regime circles in Iran were looking for a counterweight to Western European influence and looking for an exit from fundamentalism in Iran itself. 
In light of these circumstances, the Soviet Union offered itself um, as an appropriate counterweight. And here, uh, Chernayev, writing shortly after the meeting, explained that whatever packing the Iranians may put it in, Khomeini's epistle is a serious signal about the desire to enter into the development of relations with the USSR. So a lot, of, a lot is often made of Khomeini's uh, message about um, you know, sort of liberating the Muslims of the Soviet Union, uh, Gorbachev needs to convert to Islam, and so on. But if we actually look behind the scenes, this is very much kind of real politics, sort of international, uh, sort of state to interstate um, uh, relations move. And Gorbachev attempted to follow these reflections on his part and his advisors' parts with action. Following the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie on February 14, 89, and the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan a day later, Gorbachev hosted Velayati in Moscow once again, where he explained to the Iranian foreign minister that, quote, our countries are doomed to good neighborly relations and cooperation. The end of the Cold War, the Soviet exit from Afghanistan, and, and an end to ideologically driven global politics meant that countries skeptical or hostile towards American influence and in a sensitive neighborhood had no choice but to cooperate with one another. There was no such thing as ideology anymore, so there was really no other option. So, in that spirit, in the summer of 1989, um, Soviet Foreign Minister Edward Shevardnadze, whom we last saw on the tarmac in Moscow, flew to Tehran for an audience with the Ayatollahs. Now, like the letter to Gorbachev, Shevardnadze's trip to Tehran has often been interpreted sort of at face value and, and, and really frankly through cliches. Um, there's probably a good reason for this. Uh, Shevardnadze was the last foreigner to have an audience with the Ayatollah Khomeini. And when he did have an audience with Khomeini, uh, Khomeini said very vague things and got up in the middle of the meeting and left the room. Uh, here you can see Shevardnadze sort of flustered as, as uh, the, the imam, so to speak, uh, leaves the room. And conventionally, this episode has been seen along with uh, Khomeini's epistle to Gorbachev as yet another sign of defiance against the great power, against the superpower, the Soviet Union. However, if you look at the notes of Shevardnadze's interpreter from the rest of his trip to Tehran, themselves held at the Hoover Institution, uh, a quite different picture emerges. Shevardnadze met with members of the Iranian regime, like Foreign Minister Veliati, Khamenei, uh, Mir Hussein Mousavi, and Hashmi Graf Sanjani. All of them emphasized how the mere fact of Khomeini meeting with a Soviet foreign minister, regardless of the actual content of the meeting, legitimized their dealings with uh, the Soviet Union over issues like arms sales in Afghanistan. So consider Ali Khamenei, uh, then the president of Iran and today the supreme leader, who we last saw being sort of slandered as a KGB plant. In our foreign policy, he explained to Shevardnadze, we are not guided by ideological views. Otherwise, he explained, we would have to go to war with the entire world. Veliati noted that he was in talks with all actors in Afghanistan, except for the Americans. And this itself was a sign that Iran was quite prepared to live with the pro-Soviet Najibullah regime in Kabul, as opposed to something backed by Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. Prime Minister Mir Hussein Mousavi, whom we might recall from the 2009 protests and the Green Movement in Iran, was clear too. He noted to Shevardnadze that we need to work on arranging a regime there, that is Afghanistan, that is friendly both to us as well as to you. And cooperation only picked up following the death of the Ayatollah Khomeini in June 1989. Less than three weeks after the death of the Supreme Leader, Rafsanjani traveled to Moscow for high-level talks with Gorbachev. During this trip, Rafsanjani got access to Soviet weapons to help rearm Iran uh, following the conclusion of the Iran-Iraq War. <coughs> the Iranian ambassador to the USSR 
recalled how a Soviet official came up to the delegation with a blank check, in effect, for Soviet military deliveries. Writing, he wrote, he showed us a white sheet of paper at the bottom of which there were signatures of the 13 members of the Politburo. He said, I've had them all sign it. You only need to write in on the empty space of this paper what you need. In the night after this meeting, the Iranian delegation was very confused. Even members of the military, military delegation did not know which Russian items they should order. In the end, however, the delegation sent to Moscow in June 1989 purchased more than $10 billion in military equipment, much of it delivered after the Soviet collapse. So in sum, from 1987 to 1989, elites in both Moscow and Tehran uh, turned to reliance on one another as they abandoned visions of leading a global anti-imperialist revolution. To be sure, Iran's shifting tides in its war with Iraq and Soviet perceptions of that war also played a very important role, something that we can perhaps discuss in Q&A. But be that as it may, this foreign policy turn had, frankly, disastrous results in the short term. Tehran's bid to rely on the likes of Eric Honecker and Nikolai Ceausescu was poorly timed, to say the least, in the <laughs> geopolitical environment of 1989. Gorbachev did succeed at bringing Tehran closer to the Soviet orbit. And yet the logic of new thinking, of good relations with the United States and the end of the Cold War, raised the question of whether there was even a conflict of interest between the Soviet Union and the United States in Iran. And now for my final theme. Uh, visions of an Iranian perestroika. Much of my talk thus far has focused on Gorbachev's new thinking vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan, Iran, and the Third World. However, just as important to Gorbachev's reforms were domestic projects such as Glasnost and Perestroika. Scholars have focused much on these initiatives from a domestic point of view, but they devoted less attention to how these domestic projects intersected with foreign policy. During the final years of the Soviet Union, however, Gorbachev and for Soviet foreign policy analysts saw domestic and foreign reform projects as connected, not least when it came to Iran. Our starting point here should be early 1989, when Andrei Kozarev, a leading diplomat within the Soviet foreign ministry, published an article criticizing international class struggle as the basis for Soviet diplomacy. In the wake of the Eastern European revolutions of 1989, pro-Western intellectuals like Kozarev advanced the view that the Soviet Union ought to consider joining the G7, the WTO, and even multilateral security organizations. Events like Tiananmen Square showed, in Kozarev's view, not the durability of the Chinese dictatorship, but that Beijing was doomed to isolation or collapse. Moscow, in Kozarev's view, ought to abandon Eastern Europe, China, and the Third World for the West. Kozarev's views proved popular among factions of the Russian section of the Congress of People's Deputies. And in 1990, he was appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Russian SFSR, acting in a kind of parallelism with Soviet Foreign Minister Eduard Shevardnadze. This call for an 180-degree turn in Soviet foreign relations raised questions, however, about Russia's orientation towards regional powers like Iran. Hence, in late 1990, Kozarev and the Russian Foreign Ministry tasked a Soviet think tank the Problem Laboratory for Systemic Analysis of International Relations, or Problemka, to perform such applied IR analysis. During a research trip to Moscow this autumn, I came across the report written on Iran in the files of the State Archive of the Russian Federation. And I later had the chance to interview one of the authors of the report, Andrei Tsigankov, then a graduate student in Moscow and now a political scientist uh, at San Francisco State University. 
And the report offers a fascinating snapshot into Soviet policy analysts' understandings of Soviet-Iranian re uh, relations on the eve of the Soviet collapse. Tsigankov and his co-author, political scientist uh, Ksenia Borzh-Polets, noted how the, quote, pragmatist leadership of Rav Sanjani was confronted with economic backwardness and centrifugal ethnic politics. The Iranian economy had recorded negative growth rates since 1985, and with 98% of export earnings coming from oil, um, and, uh, and with 98% yeah, of exports coming from oil. Further, Iran's rate of inflation and its budget deficits put it, quote, on par with the poorest African countries. Worse, these challenges were not related to any specific discrete policy of the Islamic Republic itself, but were actually structural and could be traced back to the failure of the Shah's regime to modernize the economy. The Shah's attempts, they wrote, to mediate, between modern mo to mediate modern modes of production with bazaar channels and various types of administrative intervention turned the country not toward intensive, but rather traditional ways of doing business. All this meant that Tehran was confronted with a mass of so-called combustible human material, Toriuchi Chelyechevsky material, whose ambitions were frustrated. Adding to the challenge of what the report called Iranian stagnation, Iranski Zastoy, were Iran's ethnic politics. The report saw Iranian politics through the prism of a conflict between Persians in the center and south of the country and Azeris in the northwest of the country, the latter of whom had experienced a demographic and economic ascendancy uh, in the late 1980s. Azeri elites, the report explained, had allied with the conservative Tehran Bazaar to channel resources towards the traditional economy in the country's northwest rather than industrial and modernizing projects in southern Iran. It had also stymied a political or economic opening to the West in order to prevent exposure to global market competition. Iranians' dominant Persian ethnos, as the report called it, lacked the clout to challenge these Azeri elements head-on, and so for the moment it had supported greater cross-border traffic between Iran and the Azerbaijan SSR within the Soviet Union to kind of ease off these ethnic tensions and, and find a, a sort of market uh, for, for uh, economic interests in northwestern Iran. In the view of this report, Rafsanjani's Islamic Republic had become a mirror of Gorbachev's Soviet Union, plagued by centrifugal ethnic politics and unable to reform its way toward Western foreign aid and foreign investment. These challenges were self-reinforcing, moreover, since political entrepreneurs from the so-called massive ethnic and confessional massives divided by state borders sought to pursue direct economic and political ties unmediated by Moscow or Tehran. So, Several foreign policy conclusions followed from this bleak assessment of the Islamic Republic. Moscow ought to encourage Rafsanjani to initiate a, quote, modernization from above that would bring massive social upheavals, but which would be, quote, less painful than the consequences of any option of Iranian stagnation. Moscow ought to encourage Iran to develop ties with the West, providing technical and economic aid itself that would, quote, strengthen entrepreneurial foundations in Iranian society. All these endeavors, the report stress, ought to be framed less in terms of a, quote, pragmatic vision of Islamic order and more about uh, strengthening the, quote, Persian core of the Iranian nation. Iranian perestroika, as the report called it, would strengthen Persian elites and the Islamic Republic while also dis discouraging any centrifugal forces among what it dismissed as the so-called local powers in the Southern Caucasus or Central Asia. The report was submitted in September 1991, shortly after the August push. And so it remains really more an object of study for intellectual history than for any practical outcomes. With the Cold War a thing of the past, uh, the point of uh, Moscow's foreign policy had become less to keep Tehran apart from the West 
than to embed it within the West as part of a broader bid to, to prevent ethnic separatism um, in, in Eurasia. Iran's attempt to escape international isolation by Eastern Europe in 1989 had failed spectacularly. But the stakes of its opening to Moscow failing and Iran lacking any credible great power backer were of an entirely different order. Thus, throughout the fall of 1991, Tehran was cautious to recognize Chechen independence and it waited until after the dissolution of the Soviet Union to recognize any of the former Soviet states. And indeed, when the Soviet Union finally collapsed, Iran was forced to pursue its search for a great power backer yet again. Here, for instance, you can see the front page of the hardliner newspaper Jumhuriye Islami from December 14, 1991, announcing both the collapse of the Soviet Union in size sort of 300 font, um, <laughs> but also uh, more subtly in the top left corner, the opening of, quote, a new dialogue between Tehran and Beijing on the formation of a new united front against the new American order. So uh, let me begin to close and try to draw a few conclusions. In spite of the opening of many Soviet foreign archives, a deluge of Iranian, Soviet, and Afghan memoirs and digitization projects in Afghanistan above all, I would add, uh, existing analyses of Soviet-Iranian relations have often relied on very broad sociological comparisons of the two countries' revolutions, um, if not also the conspiracy theories with which I began my remarks today. And while historians of Eastern Europe, like Philippe Thierme and Paul Betts, have revisited the history of 1989 in terms of a turn toward neoliberalism and illiberalism, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, we still, I think, lack a history of 1989 to 1991 uh, more centered in the Soviet Union's uh, southern borderlands uh, or even other parts of what used to be called the Second World. And I've tried today to give you a sense of how my research approaches these questions. Uh, bringing an international history approach to Russian and Eurasian history I've tried to give you a sense of how I engage an eclectic mix of formal archives like those in Moscow and Berlin and Oxford and elsewhere with more informal collections like those in Bubendorf uh, or the human voices I've encountered in interviews in Persian and Russian. I've tried to present a vision of Russian and Eurasian history firmly in dialogue with the Islamic world and which combines attention to transnational and diplomatic actors. I've tried to give you a brief sense of what such an approach might look like, taking into account figures like Mohammed Montazeri, the Islamist internationalist, Marzi Hadice, the Islamist feminist, and the usual cast of very male, sort of very dour male state, uh, statesmen and diplomats. Got to get them in somewhere. Um, but so here are a few provisional conclusions. Uh, the wake of an American defeat in Vietnam and decolonization created very unrealistic expectations about the ability of resistance movements and states like Iran or the Soviet Union to challenge American hegemony in the late 1970s. Ahistorical understandings of Islamic history also created unrealistic expectations about Iran's or any state's ability to navigate international di diplomacy independent of Russia, the West, or China, as we saw at the end. By the mid-1980s, elites in the Soviet Union and Iran abandoned internationalism for mere anti-Americanism, and yet were constrained by these expectations and the multinational nature of their polities. Iranian and Soviet influence or interest in the other party was driven perhaps less by sympathies or interests vis-a-vis -vis the other than by joint anxieties about the West. Soviet elites were worried of losing influence in Tehran altogether to Western Europe and the United States. And they feared the end of the Soviet experience, that Iranian anti-Americanism was merely a passing fad, whereas anti-communism was forever. Tehran's opening to Moscow and the Eastern Bloc expanded only after Iran-Contra had shut down the option of a closer relationship with the United States. 
And by the end of the 1980s, Tehran and Moscow found themselves engaged in a conservative project of keeping the United States out of the Middle East, Pakistan out of Afghanistan, and themselves in charge of multi-ethnic polities. Moscow's attempts to reform a sclerotic economy proved disastrous, whereas Iranian stagnation gave way not to an Iranian perestroika, but rather something more muddled, if not the chaos to the north. Um, expansive visions of internationalism thus gave way to a conservative settlement followed by chaos, making the legacy of the Cold War for the lands between Moscow and Tehran rather mixed. That's something we ought to consider um, on this 30th anniversary of 1989, and something I hope that we can discuss in Q&A today. Uh, so I thank you for your attention. Um, thanks again to, to Fran, to Ted, for everybody for hosting me, and I'll be happy to take your questions. So um, we have plenty of time for, for questions. I'm going to propose um, maybe for Timothy and Lunan's sake, when you ask a question, um, also briefly introduce yourself, just your name and whether you're a student, community member, uh, faculty, staff here. Are you okay uh, handling the Yeah, can I just have a little okay. bit more uh, water? Oh, sure. Why don't I'll run and get it while you uh, take the first question. Thank you. Uh, yeah, in the back. Hi. Uh, Yoshiko Guerrero from the Food Science Department. So thanks for a very interesting talk. I, I just had a couple, kind of a larger question about the, the broader context of international relations, because I was a little bit surprised that you didn't mention the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, the failure of Soviet invasion, well, it said we successfully invaded, but then failed to um, take control over Afghanistan, and the Gulf War in 1990. So it seems like the, especially the Iran-Iraq War um, uh, and the costliness of that war would have had an effect on Iran's visions for expansion, but combined, and the Soviets similarly would have to revamp their expectations following Afghanistan. But then in, in the current contemporary period, I think a lot of people in the Middle East will be very surprised by your um, starting point of the decline of Iranian uh, global aspirations, because all of the discussion is about how Iran is encircling Israel and you know successfully funding movements all, all over all over the place. So there's like a, a lot of concern and fear about the resurgence of Iran today globally. So I just just maybe you might speak to the broader context. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for this question. Uh, to, to start off with, um, I, think that I think that integrating the Iran-Iraq war into this is, like, frankly, a major uh, problem and something that I'm trying to do as I'm working on this project. Uh, part of it simply has to do with uh, access to files. Like, we have a pretty, I have a pretty robust set of documents uh, from Soviet advisors who were in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, these or is like fundamentally a lot of this documentary base is a Soviet-Iranian conversation uh, that really does kind of exclude Iraq from the conversation. Uh, from what I've seen thus far though, uh, I think one interesting factor to bring into the equation is uh, which Iranian elites are speaking to the Moscow at which point in the 1980s. Um, in the early 1980s, looking at uh, Soviet and East German and other Eastern Bloc archives, uh, one thing that really stands out is that the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, has much, much more robust relations uh, with Eastern Bloc military and security agencies uh, and indeed the Soviet Union uh, than does like the Iranian army or like the normal Iranian uh, military. And one thing that I'm trying to sort of piece apart, and I, I think I need to do more work in Iranian memoirs and, and Iraqi archives as well, 
um, is look at precisely this moment of the Veliati uh, outreach. This is like after there's a lot of push and pull with Iran briefly taking over the road between Baghdad and Basra, uh, where the RGC uh, seems to have uh, penetrated quite deep into uh, Iraqi territory after battles over the Falcon Peninsula and I think 86, uh, 87. So I think, you know, really to be honest, one really does have to tease out more of these uh, very specific regime dynamics within uh, Iran between the RGC, uh, other actors who, who might be skeptical uh, of it, assuming too dominant of a role uh, within Iranian politics, and perhaps turning to the Soviet Union precisely at that point to try to uh, maybe end the war earlier, to try to take advantage of their dominant position vis-a-vis -vis Iraq in that very narrow time window uh, to gain a more favorable uh, settlement. Uh, so that's something I'm aware of. I, I'm, I think it's like the biggest weakness of this right now is uh, you know, I kind of come at this from a more Afghan or sort of Eastern um, agenda, and yet Iran-Iraq is like absolutely fundamental to a uh, Iranian perspective uh, of the 1980s. So that's definitely something I'm trying to work in there. I have a sense of what the sources are, uh, just trying to, to build that in, frankly. Uh, yeah, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis Iranian influence or Iranian uh, expansionism uh, elsewhere, um, it's certainly true that Iran has, has been very successfully opportunistic uh, in the wake of sort of others' foreign policy interventions uh, elsewhere in the Middle East. Uh, for example, 1982, Israel and Lebanon, uh, obviously uh, United States invasion of Iraq um, in 2003, uh, the inclusion of Iran on the uh, so-called axis of evil and, and um, its, uh, its sort of uh, lack of ability to have a constructive role alongside the U.S. vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Taliban. Uh, my main point is not that sort of Iran has you know, ceased to have foreign relations or that Iran has uh, ceased to support uh, transnational actors. Um, you know, one needs not look need not look uh, any further than Hezbollah, uh, Hamas, or, or the Houthis to uh, uh, to dismiss that claim. Uh, what I'm saying though is that uh, I think often because we tend to look at these movements from the outside, uh, we fail to distinguish between very real ideological differences between different kinds uh, of Islamist groups. Uh, and that's kind of the point I'm trying to make uh, with people like Motazeri, but that would also be evident vis-a-vis uh, -vis people like. Um, uh, Mehdi Hashimi, who was uh, executed as part of the, the, uh, the fallout of Iran-Contra. And uh, as I tried to explain, I think the, the best contrast one can draw here would be, be, would be between groups like, um, uh, say, um, a group called Sazmani Nasser, or Victory Organization in Afghanistan, that were very clear about wanting the uh, dispossession of landed classes, wanting uh, extremely ambitious programs of land reform, uh, declaring their full-throated solidarity with, um, you know, transnational liberation movements in Latin America uh, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and while it is true that people like Khamenei, you know, write letters to the American youth, and uh, while there are uh, largely symbolic efforts uh, to sort of proclaim solidarity with uh, Venezuela, uh, the core point is that uh, this this sort of uh, full-throated commitment to a left Islamist position uh, about economic redistribution, anti-elitism. Uh, the complete dissolution of, of interstate relations. Uh, I think whatever one, th one thinks of Iran's relations with Hezbollah or the Houthis today, uh, you know, I don't think that Iran is seeking to uh, abolish interstate relations uh, uh, altogether. Uh, that's, that's something that was, I think, very much on the table, or at least part of the buffet, uh, so to speak, in the early 80s.
Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, th I think a lot of that, uh, a lot of that is true. I, I mean, specifically with Afghanistan, which I know uh, better, it is true that Gorbachev does ramp up um, uh, arms aid to Najibullah from like '86 to '87. And if you look at the guy, the papers of the guy who was the advisor to uh, Najib during that time period, you know, it's very clear that they think that they can maybe have some kind of pushback, and that uh, you know, this last round of arms will be enough to get them over the hump. Um, it's also true that after the Soviet withdrawal and, and uh, sort of after 89, there was a lot of increase of arms transfers uh, to the Najibullah regime, precisely because they don't have uh, Soviet arms efforts to, um, uh, Soviet uh, occupation forces to, uh, to protect the regime uh, anymore. Um, so there are these, still these military-to-military -military ties. Um, I think what I'm saying, though, is that uh, the kind of uh, justification for this or the broad uh, framework of support for a unified anti-imperialist struggle for claiming any legitimacy uh, as a as an inheritor of, of the Bandung Conference, uh, etc., um, is really uh, out the window. Um, for example, people like um, this guy uh, Viktor Palayanichko, who is uh, the uh, advisor to Najib, uh, talks a lot about in his notes to, to Gorbachev, saying, you know, supporting a country like Mongolia. Uh, this is a good form of internationalism, and uh, okay, maybe in theory we could have Afghanistan too, but really our resources are just not there to have uh, claims to be about the anti-apartheid struggle, to end racism in the United States, to end discrimination against uh, Native Americans. Um, you know, fundamentally, uh, Afghanistan borders the Soviet Union, and you know the Soviet military-to-military -military relations reflect that. I, I think the the amount of arms delivered to places like Angola or Ethiopia. Uh, decline uh, sharply, especially especially after that 86 to 87 period, and those are obviously just sort of less core national security interests to any uh, Russian state. Mm -hmm. yeah, the back. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this uh, presentation. Um, just a couple of clarifications, I think, building on um, the first two uh, questions. And I guess the first is about the shift you're talking about from anti-imperialism to anti-American hegemony. Right? And I think um, the link between those two, um, or, or how these two are being defined, um, I think is now slowly coming out, but still not mm -hmm. completely clear. Yeah. Um, because I think this is connected to another shift that I think um, you're describing, and that is between something that you call like an internationalism, um, Versus, versus something else. Um, and I think that that shift is, the reason that's not that clear is because if you think about the, the, the Bandung and that whole Afro-Asian sort of moment, in some sense the anti-imperialism is fundamentally about national liberation. So in that sense it's internationalist and nationalist at the same time. So then the question becomes, how are we gonna descri describe this new kind of phase? And I think that what you seem to be articulating is not really the shift away from anti-imperialism, but a situation where you know anti-US imperialism, because anti-US anti-US hegemony is, you know, in, in some sense is another way of talking about anti-US uh, imperialism. But what's happened is that the content of that anti-imperialism has, has changed considerably. So what then you have is the move away from any kind of transnational social revolution. And so, so there's a sense in which you can be anti-imperialist and conservative at the same time, while previously it was anti-imperialist with, uh, with a kind of radical 
Mm. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I'm very hesitant here uh, to, to be too, uh, too wedded or essentialist towards, uh, you know, anti-imperialist is like this, this one thing and, and, anti and anti-Americanism being, uh, being another thing. So I, I do agree that there's uh, perhaps too much conceptual um, uh, fuzziness there. Uh, but I, I, I do think there is a, a shift, and I thank you for articulating it that way. I, I think, um, I just think particularly vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, one thing you see is in the early 1980s, there's a very strong claim that decolonization is not yet complete. Uh, there are still uh, numerous groups, uh, be it the Moro or these uh, southern Thailand Muslims that, that deserve uh, political sovereignty, uh, that, that the kind of quest for national liberation as you describe it, is is uh, is not complete. And then at some point in as early as eighty one, but certainly uh, by eighty six or eighty seven, uh, a lot of my sources describe um, a shift away from that. Uh, a lot of Afghan groups describe how uh, the um, or a lot of Afghan intellectuals describe how there's a shift away from people who had been anti feudal, about economic redistribution, um, as well as parties like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, Hezbi Islami, which was sort of more ambitious in terms of its social programming than others. And a shift towards other Afghan groups that were basically just conservative uh, Shia. Uh, they also describe how you know the Latin Americans go away, the the Canary Island people go away, <laughs> and, and basically by the mid 1980s, uh, you know clearly there's still Lebanese, uh, there's still Iraqis, there's still uh, Afghans, uh, uh, Bahrainis, uh, etc. In Iran, uh, but this is a much more regionally uh, defined um, you know set of engagements, and this perhaps comes back to the. The first question, um, you know, I, um, uh, I I think it's important not to be too uh, wedded to one concept or the other. Uh, they might still be supporting transnational movements, but it's really uh, defined uh, much more clearly in a traditional Iranian sphere of influence, namely the, the Levant, the Gulf, and, and Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. Uh, my name is Mike Goodman. I'm a retired ABD from the history department uh, here. Um, as long as you touched on the whole question of the non-aligned movement, I, I was going to ask you, um, do you attach any significance to the fact that uh, Fidel Castro managed to make himself head of the non-aligned movement, I think, in the very last phases of the Cold War? And also, since you mentioned Angola, I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about what was the role of uh, Cuba in Angola vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union? Um, was there, I mean, you hear different analyses of that, but um, did the Soviet Union ask for the Cuban troops to be sent there, or did Fidel just go ahead and send them there anyway? Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm not really a specialist on, on Southern Africa, but I right. think that if you if you look at the work of people like Piero Iglesias, um, Mark Kramer, and, and uh, Jeremy Friedman, uh, Sergei Rachenko, and so on, uh, my, my impression is that the consensus is that Castro was you know, largely acting on his own initiative mm -hmm. uh, in Angola. Uh, to kind of connect it to, back to the broader issue of, uh, of sort of internationalism, however, uh, one thing that is interesting and I think maybe helps us suss out this uh, shift in the early 1980s is that uh, the Shah, you know, up until 1979 had been a, uh, had, had not recognized uh, Havana, had been a, uh, a, a loud opponent of uh, Castro, and one of the first things that the uh, Islamic Republic did was join the non-aligned movement and reestablish relations with Cuba. Um, and again, particularly during this sort of early 1980s moment, uh, Iran sends uh, delegates uh, to uh, the uh, non-aligned uh, conference in New Delhi uh, in 1983. Uh, parallel to the gentleman's uh, comments there, it, it also sends uh, Iraqis uh, there. It sends uh, Iraqi transnational groups to say, look, uh, the non-aligned movement uh, 
is overall a good thing. Uh, we, we have some problems with uh, Castro, with Kim Il-sung, and so on, but the real problem with the non-aligned movement is that it doesn't admit uh, transnational Islamist groups uh, like these, uh, these Iraqi organizations. So there is, a, you know, I think, a strong demand in the early 1980s for the kind of uh, the transnational to become a sphere of international relations itself. So um, uh, it is actually a really interesting subject. There's a lot of great memoirs by Iranian uh, deputy foreign ministers who go to Pyongyang and uh, um, Beijing and, and Havana and so on throughout the 1980s. Uh, it's something I haven't really read enough into yet, but uh, uh, they really are operating in kind of the same international policy uh, space and they're thinking about these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for a great talk. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the different kinds of sources that you were working with and if the kinds of different or similar perspectives that they might offer. So, um, for example, when you're looking at the memoirs versus the archival materials, do you, was ideology, um, it, does that come out as a more important factor in yeah, um, yeah, so uh, broadly, one has clearly a kind of interest, uh, an imbalance, uh, a rich one, I think, but, but still nonetheless a challenging one. Um, you know, on the Soviet side, uh, very recently, uh, Ergani, this archive for like post-1953, sort of Soviet everything, um, has, has uh, been very forthcoming recently, and, and we can really uh, get a much better sense of Soviet views on Iran, on Afghanistan, uh, well into the 1980s there. Um, and there, I think you see you do see a, a shift uh, in the kind of um, I don't know more ideology-driven foreign policy of the early '80s uh, to the much more I think cynical, interest-driven um, foreign policy that I attempted to describe in the second part of the talk. Uh, for instance, um, one document that I've seen recently from Ergani from I think '81 or '82 um, uh, shows Soviet diplomats being very interested in Mir Hussein Mousavi as a um, as a possible vehicle for a uh, kind of uh, a state of socialist orientation almost forming in Iran. Uh, they're very interested in Mousavi's attempts to uh, push forward with more ambitious land reform in Iran, and they're really quite hopeful that Iran could become a state, uh, if not along the lines of Angola, uh, along the lines of the gentleman's question, but perhaps like Tanzania or uh, Algeria, uh, something like that. And so they're very interested in seeing Iran and, and I mean, sort of left, slightly left Islamist figures like Mousavi um, along those lines. They're also very concerned about uh, the uh, sons of the Shah uh, staging a possible kind of invasion of Iran through uh, Turkey. So the uh, figure uh, Fakhrabar, with whom I began, these kinds of um, neocon uh, Iranians figure into the story as well. But that, that's a very different kind of ideological driven language uh, from what we have uh, later. Um, in terms of the Iranian side, it's, it's a little bit uh, difficult, and, and the Afghan side for that matter as well. Uh, we really have a surfeit of um, newspapers. Um, there's been wonderful digitization initiatives um, uh, in Afghanistan itself that really allow us to see like a huge amount of periodicals uh, from Afghan groups. Um, a lot of Afghan intellectuals have published memoirs in recent years that you know really help us get inside uh, the, uh, Iran during that period. But these are fundamentally people who are writing in like the late 2000s and 2010s, and obviously projecting. Uh, backwards uh, on there. So they're, I think, more sober. Uh, there are people who have um, dealt with a uh, with this very complex process of, of Islamism seeming very energetic and a possible solution to international relations. And then somehow after the Cold War, Islamism is kind of an ideological orphan and, and sort of what is it supposed to be now? Uh, so there is, a, um, there is this process of backtracking that one has to manage on the Iranian and Afghan side in the absence of a lot of um, 
a lot of uh, robust uh, files. The advantage, though, is there's just an enormous amount of reads. So I think that one can be um, one can be really quite critical and, and have the luxury of uh, kind of triangulating a lot between different accounts. Whereas on the Soviet side, we don't always have the same richness of memoirs, frankly. Uh, not as self-critical, uh, I, I think. Um, people came to Brezhnev's memoirs or diaries recently. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, it's sort of a, an interesting asymmetry, but uh, I think something that's um, you know, it's an inherent problem of a transnational international history project. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, my name is Milan Helm, and I used to teach here, now affiliated with the history department. Uh, first, congratulations to your wit and, and uh, <laughs> you know, broad uh, access to sources. Especially people who consulted. Very impressed by the duplicity of the Biblioteca Afghanica in Switzerland. Uh, but uh, now to, to, to your model or what you are trying to construct as a, uh, as a progressive or a modern vision of this Soviet relationship with Iran, uh, what I am missing is the, uh, what Goshika already expressed, the, the pillars of international events and catastrophes. The, 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 almost passed under silence the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the withdrawal. We need some assessment. Uh, in, and it's present in the views of both must be the Soviet leaders and the, uh, the Afghan politicians. So the, it, it goes further. It goes to the uh, outcome of the First World War, which established the Soviet Union, and also the Reza Shah, dictatorship in Iran. And, and, and at that time, already, you know, the, the deep <coughs> conflict between the two branches of Islam, Shia and Sunni, existed, against which the revolutionary movements like the Caliphate movement, the Pan-Turanism emerged. And these must be some links, you know, between uh, those currents and, and, and the present uh, splinter. You, you mentioned a, a number of splinter groups, rather isolated mm -hmm. uh, people, uh, but it needs to be brought in the overreaching picture. Uh, and that's why I'm asking you why you left that out. Uh, it's impossible to understand the emergence of the Islamic State now, uh, a Thai city, or, uh, without understanding the Shia and, and the Sunni split, which has been with us for a thousand years. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for your question. Um, uh, so I agree with you that definitely kind of uh, macro-historical um, uh, pillar, as you called it, is, is really helpful. Uh, obviously, just because of the interest of time and trying to focus down for this particular talk, I wanted to focus just on this period of 85 to, to 91. Uh, that being said, uh, you are right on a couple on a number of points, but vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, it's obviously a, a really central uh, episode. It's something I think I discussed a bit uh, in the talk. More broadly, though, I think one of the things I'm trying to do here is we already have a lot of really excellent histories of Soviet decision-making about the uh, decision to invade Afghanistan. 
uh, people like Artemi Kalinowski, uh, I wrote a bit on this in my first book. Uh, I don't really see the need to uh, go through that a lot, uh, par partly because it's already been done. Um, another reason why, or another thing I think I'm doing differently here, uh, is trying to look at the Afghan arena uh, through this perspective of Iran, Iranian-backed sources, and Iranian-backed groups, and Afghan voices as well, something that's not frankly done very well in a lot of uh, histories of the Soviet decision to uh, invade Afghanistan. Uh, you know, similarly, vis-a-vis -vis ideas about Sunni-Shia divides, uh, one thing that I you know, didn't have time to discuss in this talk, but I think is, is quite important, uh, is that it's, it's really important for us not to back-project uh, views of a so-called 1,000-year rivalry uh, between the two groups, uh, which became much more marked post-2003, back on the Cold War. I'll just give you an example. Uh, a lot of these Iranian groups, people like uh, Mohammad Montazeri, the guy that I mentioned uh, earlier as sort of Islamic Republic uh, in Iran, uh, they are extremely interested in people that today get classified as Sunni extremists, like Saif Qut, uh, or Qutb, as he's sometimes pronounced. Uh, they attack Saudi Arabia for not sufficiently kind of glorifying Saif Qut uh, and not being sort of sufficiently um, sort of Muslim Brotherhood uh, enough. Uh, many of these Iranian figures are saying, look, we have inherited the best of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in Egypt, uh, we are fulfilling on the true legacy of people like Qasem al-Banna, Saif Qut, uh, other Egyptian Islamists who are more obscure. And so I think rather than you know, saying like, oh, there's this uh, deep split, uh, it's, it's sort of ahistorical and has, has been there forever, you know, once you actually look at the sources from the time, in particular in the 60s and 70s, you can see how a lot of this was really much more fluid and, and really only hardened in certain ways after events like the Iran-Iraq war, and in particular after the, uh, the aftermath of the Iraq war in 2003. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of other sort of broad macro-historical directions that uh, uh, one can go in, and certainly this sort of, I don't know, long array approach is, um, is essential in some sense, but I think it's, um, it can often obscure uh, the contingency and uh, you know, specifics of, of how things actually played out. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of them were, um, you know, uh, unpleasantly surprised, uh, uh, to say the least. But uh, they, uh, they they managed to adapt in often uh, very creative ways. Um, uh, this is a whole other sort of part of the story that I could have included, and, but since I, uh, uh, I think even at Krika, people uh, maybe would uh, would, would uh, throw me out the window if I talked for two hours on uh, Iranian socialists in Minsk and Prague and so on. I had to leave it out, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, broadly, after 19, uh, so in Iran there were like struggles between the left and Islamist groups uh, in the early 1980s, but the, the sort of long and short of it is that uh, broadly the left uh, was marginalized and uh, imprisoned or uh, expelled from the country by around 1983. And many of these groups uh, went to uh, Prague. Uh, there, were, there was a large Iranian diaspora already in Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union. But a lot of them actually went to Afghanistan as well. And there's a whole another really interesting aspect to this whereby uh, the Afghan communists are like, look, we learned from you guys. Like we are, like, we are trying to do Iranian socialism in Afghanistan because that's sort of how we learned how to do this whole thing. Uh, they're there. There are attempts, uh, tons of really interesting stories about it. But broadly, after, um, after this initial sort of arms delivery push that uh, Michael 
um, uh, hinted at. Uh, you know, clearly Soviet support for Afghanistan declines. They stop funding uh, Toiler's radio, Radio Zehnak Keshan, which was like a Iranian uh, sort of Iranian socialist radio-free uh, Europe, so to speak, uh, based in uh, Kabul. Uh, but many of these people are very creative and manage to land on their feet in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, broadly, after 85 and 86, uh, Iranians were allowed to leave the Soviet Union and travel like more or less freely to uh, East Germany, and they could often then travel uh, through Friedrichstrasse in East Berlin to get to the West. Uh, so many of them claimed political asylum uh, pretty early in the late 1980s in countries like Sweden or the Netherlands. Um, I know of one guy uh, who was much more entrepreneurial uh, would go to uh, West Germany, uh, sort of scrounge together all the resources he could in the Soviet Union to get enough cash, would go to West Germany, uh, buy uh, used Mercedes Benzes, and then drive them all the way into the Soviet Union and sell them uh, for money, and kind of did this several times to build up some capital to uh, facilitate his moving to the West. So, you know, broadly, these people are, are resourceful, but I think like many other socialists in the, in the late 1980s, they're dealing with this kind of um, you know, massive shift in, uh, in perceptions of international socialism and the, and the feasibility or desirability of a uh, Marxist-Leninist uh, uh, politics. And um, you know, some of them retained social democratic sympathies, uh, remained very skeptical of the US. Um, and you know, most of the people that I have interacted with are uh, quite far politically from the, the likes of uh, Fakhrabar, from whom I uh, began. They're very opposed to the Islamic Republic, uh, certainly, but uh, they're also extremely skeptical of people like uh, John Bolton or um, you know uh, any uh, any vigorous American attempt to uh, intervene militarily in Iran. We have time for one more question. Okay. Any shakers before I give it back to Michael? Okay, go for it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I had some brief questions about the period of the occupation of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Um, if I remember correctly, weren't there some students that also wanted to take over? Uh, the Soviet embassy during that period, but I think the Revolutionary Guards uh, dissuaded them from doing that. And then also about this uh, research library in Switzerland, um, do they have an extensive collection of the CIA and other classified documents that the uh, students took out of the U.S. embassy during the period that they occupied it? Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I am frankly less of an expert on, um, and part of the design of this project is to avoid delving too deeply into the, to the labyrinth of uh, sort of street politics in Tehran from like 78 to, to 83, because you know, God knows one could write uh, many books on that. Uh, but yes, I, I have seen um, uh, sort of anecdotes and memoirs uh, describing how there was some, there was much flexibility in terms of which embassy to take. Uh, I would add that Soviet consulates and embassies were routinely like attacked and overtaken for short periods uh, throughout the 1980s. There's, there's excellent memoirs by uh, uh, a Georgian, uh, the Georgian consul, uh, or the, the Soviet consul, I should say, in Esfahan in uh, southern Iran, and uh, there the large Afghan diaspora uh, was repeatedly attacking the embassy. Interestingly, the IRGC was often pushing back the Afghans or trying to push back crowds, so again, we have this uh, dynamic that is, I think, still insufficiently sussed out of sort of, is there a um, kind of cohabitation between the IRGC and the, and the Soviet Union as opposed to the to other elements in the, in the regime? Uh, but, but certainly there's this kind of flexibility and, and hostility towards the Soviet Union and its, uh, its uh, material presence in buildings in uh, Tehran. Um, as far as the uh, documents from the uh, American Embassy, uh, those are actually not in Switzerland. Like the Swiss documents are fundamentally stuff collected from 
uh, Afghan refugee camps in uh, Peshawar and elsewhere in Pakistan um, in the 1980s. Uh, so a lot of those kinds of materials just sort of wouldn't be there. Uh, that being said, after uh, 79, uh, I think more or less the complete set of documents that were in the so-called spies den uh, have been published and translated into Persian by, uh, you know, by, the, uh, by the Islamic Republic and, and institutions within it. So um, you know, if, that's, if that's the kind of thing that one is interested in, uh, that is, you know, as, as I've discovered with many things in, in Iranian history, it not only exists, but it's actually like 4,000 pages, and you can you know, go read it. And the problem is, as we discussed with Fran's question, how you actually uh, sort of end up writing a book that is also not 4,000 pages, but maybe uh, 400 pages, or even better, like 200 pages. So uh, that's, that's part of the challenge. Great. Well, thank you all for coming today, and please join me in thanking you.